Hello and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple with me, Susie Dent, and my brilliant co-host who I can see on a Zoom window, Giles Brandreth. Hi, Giles. How are you doing? I'm okay. If I was to say to you, lip smacking, thirst quenching, ace tasting, motivating, good, buzzing, cool, talking high, walking fast, living, ever giving, cool, fizzing, do you know what comes next? No, I love the way you say it though. Say it again. Do you not remember this? I don't oh remember it. This is something I memorised as a child. I'm sure lots of the purple well, people. Well, you're will a generation this. younger than me, so I may have missed out on it. Do it. Do it again, though, because okay. it was quite fun. Lip smacking, thirst quenching, ace tasting, motivating, good buzzing, cool talking, high walking, fast living, ever giving, cool fizzing, Pepsi. Oh. Pepsi. Pepsi. I even had a silver belt when I was young with all of that written on it. How fabulous. With my hot pants. I absolutely loved it. Um, And actually, we're talking about advertising today, so I thought I'd kick off with that. And I think it's an amusing idea that you're wearing the hot pants to prove to me that you can still (laughs) get into them. The silver Mm. belt is charming too. They were bright pink, and I'm afraid to say that's well, they, not I must say, they're not that any longer. You clearly wash <laughs> them on a regular basis. They're looking a little bit pale. But mm. yes, isn't it interesting the way, well, clearly it works. It's in your head. It, oh, it, totally. It's still there after all these years. Do yeah. you think it made you drink more Pepsi? Did it make you choose Pepsi as opposed to Coke, which I suppose yes. is the other big rival at the time? Yes, I'm afraid to say it worked. Not forever, because when I was studying in America and would go into breakfast in the college canteen, Diet Coke was actually on tap for breakfast. And I'm afraid that was the beginning of an addiction, genuine addiction that lasted for quite a long time. But a bit like Rishi Sunak, I have now... If I not just restricted myself like Rishi, I have actually stopped. Um, but for a while, it was always Pepsi. And honestly, it was it was just a brilliant ad. Well, I like advertising. And I think I really fell in love with it when probably you were still at school. Well, in fact, you were. But maybe you were hardly born. I was at university and I went to the Soviet Union for the first time during mm-hmm. a holiday, one of my holidays. I got a visa and went behind the Iron Curtain, as it was then called and went to Moscow. And the real thing that struck me most about life behind the Iron Curtain was no advertising. We just take it for granted here. There's there's colour, there's lights, there's posters, there's everything going on, selling you things. But behind the Iron Curtain in those days, there was no advertising of any kind, no hoardings. And you actually missed it. You missed the vibrancy of it. And of course, that slogan worked. Otherwise, they wouldn't go on doing it. Millions, billions. It's a huge industry, advertising. It's fascinating. And the reason we're talking about it today is you reminded me the other day that some quite distinguished writers started out uh, as copywriters working in advertising agencies. Was it, who was it who came up with the naughty but nice to advertise fresh cream cakes? Salman Rushdie. Goodness. So, uh, yes, so that was one of his, which is uh, extraordinary. And you're absolutely right. We were talking about that with hyperbole, weren't we? So we thought we would dedicate an entire episode to advertising. I'm not sure if it's a generational thing, but I look back with real fondness on some of the brilliant, brilliant ads of my youth. And now if I'm if I'm kind of watching stuff on playback or whatever, and then we'll be looking at the ads as well, because I'm too mean to pay for no ads. I don't think they're as good. I find them more obvious. And I've got a lot of friends in advertising, so I'm letting them down completely with this. But I just think they've lost their edge a little bit. Maybe it's the TV ads that are just not cutting it for me anyway, but it might just be because I'm getting older. I think it's to do with nostalgia because I don't remember advertising from my childhood because my parents didn't think that we middle-class people should have ITV. 
So when ITV was introduced in 1957 on British television, my parents didn't get it. And in fact, they didn't they got it until the 1960s. So my recollections, when you're remembering the ads you heard as a little girl, I can remember sitting on the sofa on a Saturday afternoon and Partick Thistle 3, Accrington Stanley 2. That's what, for me, is a sort of echo of childhood. So I think it may be to do with nostalgia. Also, of course, the advertising today isn't necessarily geared at you or me. Somebody who was in the world of advertising explained to me, I said, why, why are there so many advertisements for cars and for banks on TV? Is it because they're so rich? He said, no, it's because when you decide on your car or your bank, you stick with it for a lifetime. So uh-huh. what these ads are trying to do are to get young people, get them on board, and then, I mean, are you with the same bank you were with 20 years yes, ago? Absolutely. So am I. I'm with yeah. the same the same branch I joined, NatWest, Oxford High Street, 121 High Street, Oxford. I've been with that branch since 1966. People Amazing. don't change their bank, and they tend not to change their car either. The first mm. sort of proper grown-up car you buy is the car you stick with. So they spend a fortune because once they've hooked you, they've hooked you forever. Yeah. So now you being, I'm afraid, what we would call middle-aged and me being what we would call old, we are not the people they're advertising. And uh, maybe right, you might be right. So that well, uh, that's my instinct. How, how yeah. long do you? I mean, I know a little bit about the history of advertising only because I read a book a few years ago called "The Shocking History of Advertising" because my family featured in it. But I think they, they basically concentrated on the nineteenth century, and I know that's the real birth of modern advertising. But do we know how far back advertising goes and what it was in the early days? Well, I think it goes back. Almost for you know to the beginning of civilization. So if you look at the the ancient worlds, I mean the Egyptians actually advertised their wares on papyrus, and the Romans sort of promoted political candidates on coins. Newspapers, I mean obviously that's much more recently, but they've carried adverts for for medicines, including Brandreth's wonderful pills, uh, forever. But I think in terms of the modern advertising age, it was probably Pear's soap in the eighteen eighties, which most people then sort of credit with the first modern print ad and you know it's astonishing just how much it has grown um and and also suffered i think during the pandemic there's been a real downturn inevitably because people couldn't go on holidays or you know they didn't have as much disposable income but i imagine it will it will see a resurgence and it will be back to normal before too long i admire people in the ad industry like you i've known many in fact i was offered a job um as a copywriter in America in the 1960s. And I was sorely tempted because, as the man offering me the job explained, what you've got to try to do is create a story, create a drama, create a disturbance. He was very keen on that idea that every every advertisement slightly disturbs you. There's something in it that arrests you. And you've got to tell this story, often in 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute at most, bring the whole world. And to try and do that economically, visually, with words and pictures, is quite an art. Yeah. No, it is an art. And also a very well-paid art because, you know, the best copywriters are, are literally millionaires because they have created so much business for the uh, for the brands that they are so brilliantly promoting. I bought the house I now live in from a famous advertising man called Peter Marsh, who mm-hmm. um, founded a company eventually called Alan Brady and Marsh. And he uh, was famous for securing the contract to look after British Rail. Do you remember 
British Rail. I remember of, British Rail, yeah, Before denationalization. Anyway, yeah. British Rail were looking for a new advertising agency and did this thing of going around different agencies to, for, for them to pitch. And they turned up at Alan Brady and Marsh for their appointment, which was 9 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And they arrived somewhere, I think it was Charlotte Street in London, and they arrived at the office and they got in and the receptionist was sitting behind the desk looking very bored, um, looked up, barely glanced at them, turned them to sit and wait. And they, they sat down and, and the reception area was filthy. There was old newspapers and spilt cups of coffee and it really was ghastly. Anyway, they were waiting there for about 40 minutes and eventually the man from British Rail got up and said, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave now. At which point, Peter Marsh, who ran the agency, emerged from a back room and said, well, now you know what it's like to be a customer of British Rail. <laughs> and uh, he got the contract as a result of that. So they're clever people. They're canny, crafty people. What? Can, give me some of your favourite or the most memorable adverts for you. For me? Well, oh, Lord. I did like putting a tiger in your tank. Was this Esso? Esso wants to make your... Was it? Yes. Esso. We've talked about this before because Esso Blue had the same jingle as Opal Fruits, which oh. were the predecessors of Starburst. So I always used to somehow mix the two up and say Esso Blue made to make your mouth water, which is obviously completely <laughs> not right. Um, but uh, Tiger in Your Tank, I think there was, oh, what was he called? Tony the Tiger. He was for Cocoa Pops or something. There you are. Sugar Puffs or this something. This shows me how confused I am. I, I, I may get you if I can see where it is in this room. In the 1970s, 80s, uh, Kellogg's, they used to give away little books, joke books, puzzle books, cartoon books, in their packets of Kellogg's cornflakes yes. and, and Cocoa oh, yes. Pops and all the other things. And I wrote those little books. And I've got, I'm in the room at home where I keep all my past triumphs. I think Tony the Tiger was Frosty's. Ah, OK. Well, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because we remember the ad, but we don't actually remember the brand. I mean... There are several criteria, I think, or at least several strategies, aren't there, to make a successful ad, really. I like the ones that are deliberately sort of understated. So they almost take the mickey out of themselves, which I think is... A, very British, and B, very effective. So if you think about Marmite, you know, they say you either love it or hate it. And, of course, Marmite has entered the dictionary, meaning something you either love or somebody you either really love or you really can't stand. So that was very clever. And Skoda, you know, Skoda actually, I think, don't they use the chassis of, of much more expensive models? So effectively, they're the same cars. But because they had a sort of slightly poor person's reputation, their ad was, it's a Skoda honest. In other words, yes, this wonderful car that you're looking at really is a Skoda. And I think that's really clever. Economy in the use of words is clearly key. Yeah, just do it. Is um, that Nike? That's Nike. Is, and is it pronounced Nike or Nike? Nike, I think, named after the goddess of victory. So a very clever use of, of the name. And there's a wonderful word, Nikedonia, which is the anticipation of victory, which is quite a useful word. And yes, that's sort of the, the sort of taciturnity, if you like. There's also I'm loving it with McDonald's, but with no G, I'm loving it. I'm loving and it. that's been really influential grammatically as well, because that tense... I am loving something, really, really took off after the McDonald's ad. So that had a, a sort of significant impact on the English language, which, of course, is the holy grail, really. I was 
always amazed at the success of Ronald McDonald because I know a lot of people... Oh, he's so scary. Su- exactly. What is that fear of clowns called, that phobia oh, of clowns? Oh, yes, that's me, chorophobia. Exactly. It's well known that people have a fear of clowns and there is Ronald McDonald not looking to me like a terribly appealing clown, looking like a rather sinister figure and yet they use him, don't they? Extraordinary. Yes, and actually the charity, which is, is it called the Ronald McDonald Charity anyway? The McDonald's Charity is huge. They do a huge amount. So, yes, clearly, you know, scary for some, but not for others, and successful, as you say. And it's interesting as well, thinking about Ronald McDonald, the sort of memorable characters that you have. I mean, you and I will remember Milk Tray Man, and all because... Oh, the, the lady, lady loves, loves Milk, milk tray. tray. You couldn't do that now, could you? Because it, it's, it's bad form. It's rather it's, like... It could be politically incorrect. It, it was a kind of such well, a James Bond character. it's incorrect on all sorts of levels. He's, he's, of he's, he's, he's swinging into, into a, a, a person's bedroom <laughs> without their permission. Dressed in black. Dressed in black. He's calling her a lady. How patronising can you get? And, just, and he thinks he's got access because she likes chocolates. I mean, please. <laughs> I mean, get but her. But it was clever because it gave that James Bond fe- feel to, what's face it, are usually the cheaper end of, of the chocolate range. Oh, uh, so it was incredibly clever, clever ad. But speaking of which, I was talking about um, mummies the other day, you know, those Egyptian mummies. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was hearing about somebody who'd had their horse stuffed, like taxidermy for their horse, because they were so wow. sad to lose it. And I explained that I was planning to get my body stuffed when I die, mm. because my wife has said to me for years, get stuffed. And I thought, well, when I die, I will. <laughs> and then I can sit in the hallway like a sort of figure. In different, she can put on different jumpers on me every day. And it is done, as you know, there's Jeremy Bentham at UCL in London, Jeremy Bentham, the philosopher. His mm. mummified body is on display at University College London. So you can get, you can get stuffed. Anyway, I was mentioning this uh, to somebody, and they said to me, what do you get when you pour... Nuts and chocolates all over an Egyptian mummy. And the answer is Pharaoh Rocher. Oh. Anyway, forgive, uh, me for, I, forgive me for that. But there we are. Ferrero Rocher is another... That's another I, one. I can the picture, luxury. I can picture yeah, the advertisement, the though, of yeah. the, the person coming in holding the, uh, the pyramid of chocolates. Yeah. So oh, what? I just remember the yes. flake ads as well. Do you remember the flake ads with the girl in a field of poppies and she's got a, an old-fashioned bite with a basket and she looks like she is in absolute heaven, pretty much having an orgasm, essentially, through chocolate. You see, I have to wait for you to say things now that I would no longer dare say. But you're right, sex sells. Let's go through the list I think it was of actually a sex thing. what yeah. works. Sex clearly sells. I mean, the yes. put a tiger in your tank from Exxon, was there a kind of... Of boom, boom, sexual element, do you think, to that? Or not? Maybe no, not. No, actually. I don't remember it well enough. I do remember the Diet Coke man, uh, which kind of flipped, the, you know, turned the tables from all these kind of exotically dressed women selling stuff. And this time it was, it was very buff men and sort of women, you know, being quite voyeuristic and watching them down a, a, a can of Coke. So that kind of flipped things a little bit. But obviously, as you say, times are changing uh, now. Um, we're much more wholesome now, aren't we? I mean, you think of the anticipation every Christmas of the John Lewis Christmas ad and other supermarkets obviously joining in. But those are little, very creative films in themselves. And, you know, the pressure on them, I guess, to sort of outdo themselves every single year must be uh, immense. And what they're trying to do there is be cosy, sentimental, nostalgic, uh, as you say, wholesome. So it's interesting, sex sells, but wholesome sells as well. 
It's yeah, probably curious, more what? now, I would say. Um, I think we've come a long way from the from the flake ads now. But yeah, it is interesting. I mean, we're, we're going back to the memorable characters, which I think is a really key and very successful way of creating a memorable ad. Do you remember the, well, he's still around, Alexander the Meerkat. CompareTheMeerkat.com. Now, you see, I have no idea what CompareTheMeerkat.com product is. I have no idea at all. But Alexander the Meerkat, I adore. Yeah. And in fact, when with TV programmes, we watch them, we usually watch them pre-recorded, we fast forward through the ads until we see the meerkat, in which case my wife says, stop, and we have to watch the meerkat. We have fallen in love with the characters. We absolutely do. And I'm going to tell you about how that ad has actually had an impact on the English language. But speaking of ads, should we stop for one? Susie, please, can you tell me what wanderlust means? Well, it comes from German and it means a strong desire to travel. And Jazz, I know you love to tell anecdotes. So do you have a good travel story? I had an amazing time in Iceland. I went pony trekking and the person who was in charge of the pony trekking told me that in those days, on a Thursday evening, there was no television in Iceland because people were supposed to be at home reading books. Well, let me tell you about Explore Worldwide. They organise small group adventures that are led by local tour leaders so that you can fully immerse yourself in local knowledge whilst exploring a new country. The most important part of the holiday is respecting local culture and environment. And Explore can help you find expert tour leaders that can get you off the beaten track and into the heart of your adventure. Whether it's a food and wine tour in the hilltop towns of Tuscany or a walking tour in the rice fields of Vietnam, Explore take care of everything, putting the quality of their local tour leaders front and centre so you'll truly understand the wow factor of where you are. If you're thinking about your next adventure, head to exploreworldwide.co.uk to find out more. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. So, Giles, comparethemeerkat.com, you say you love the ads. Can you remember the single word that actually then was suddenly on everyone's lips. It became a kind of staple of slang as a result of those ads. Give me a clue. Uh, uh, it's the kind of the sign Simples, simples. Simples, Simples, exactly. indeed. Simples. Was suddenly everywhere in team slang, all because of the impact of the ad. Oh, it's amazing. It is amazing, uh, isn't it? And I know him because he's a DJ, the man in the Go Compare the Go Compare opera singer. He is actually an opera singer. Oh, yes. He's also a yeah. Welsh DJ, and I've met him. He's a delightful fellow. But mm. that that obviously is hugely successful. Yeah. I mean, the ads to me seem totally inane, even though I know and like the the fellow. So there's no but accounting again, for what works. I think that's the success. I think it's taking the Mickey out of itself, and I think that that is really successful. Don't take yourself too seriously. Make people laugh by doing something really, as you say, inane, and it will stick in the memory. Um, and another good way that we haven't really mentioned is, oh, I suppose, simples comes into this category because it didn't exist before. But playing around with words. Because I think if you have a linguistic impact, then you also have quite an impact on people's memories. So one of the really clever 
political campaigns, if you remember, was the Saatchi and Saatchi 1978 ad that was aimed against Callaghan's government, and it was Labour isn't working, with a whole queue of unployed, basically, which I think was incredibly effective. Do you remember that? Of course you I remember You were probably it. in politics then, were you? I, I was, and yeah. indeed, uh, at the time, I, I knew Maurice Saatchi at the time that they were working on that, and it was credited with really making the difference at the election. I mean, ads would not go on. They would not be the multi-billion pound industry if they didn't work. But as an ad man once said to me, we don't know what will work and what won't work until we do it. But I can't see a tin, a can of baked beans without thinking... Beans means Heinz. Very clever. More more wordplay. Actually, while we're on these slogans, I'm going to test you on some. Mm. And I'm, I'm going to just leave a gap for the product. I think you'll know quite a lot of them, actually. Uh, a day helps you work, rest and play. A Mars bar day. And I believed it. And I think now they have to change the ad because it's not technically 100% Healthy. correct. Because, <laughs> you know, well, but they were only advocating one. I, I used to love that. Um, uh, no, have I you ever had a deep fried uh, Mars bar? No, I've never never gone for that. No. Um, I have had this product, however. Um, that you'll know this one as well. One of the most successful ones goes right back to the 1930s. We are the happy girls and boys. I was going to say, we are the Ovaltines. Exactly. Ovaltine, the warm malt drink. It's before my time, sleep. but it was big in the 1930s and 1940s, it wasn't was. it? And it there, was. it was the melody that made it successful. Absolutely. Here's one that you won't know, because it's way before your time. The slogan was simply, even your closest friends won't tell you. Oh, it's, an, it's a deodorant one. It's not, but you're, you're oh. close. Oh, bad breath. Yeah, It's for Listerine. bad breath. Listerine. Things that are before my time are the things I do know. Things that are of my time, I know nothing about at all. Um, Okay. Do you want some more? Yeah, please. I'm loving it. Okay. It's the real thing. Coke? Coca-Cola? Yes. Yes. You've got to get the authentic. Don't don't. It's the real thing. Oh. Uh, Yep. Uh -uh. Refreshes the parts other beers cannot reach. I was going to say opal fruits again. Uh -uh. (laughs) Heineken. Heineken. It shows you how effective these things are. I want to explain to our listeners that we have not cheated. I did not know that these were going to be thrown our way. And are you remembering them too? I wonder if you're listening. Anyway, go on. So we also have... um, Hello, Tosh. Got a... Hello, Tosh. Got a... I don't know that at all. Hello, Tosh. Got a Toshiba? Do you remember that one? Hello, Tosh. Got a Toshiba? No. No, you don't remember that. I don't remember that one. This one you'll definitely know. Vorsprung durch Technik. Ah, yes. Is that for... You see, I'm not sure. I think it's for BMW. No, Audi. But there you are. I knew it was a car. But (laughs) how interesting. I think what happened to me is I fall in love with the advertisement um, and it's working subliminally. I mean, I mentioned beans, beans, Heinz. The point is I go into the supermarket and I see two cans of beans and the Heinz ones are more expensive. The ones next door are probably made by Heinz but put in a different can, but I still (laughs) go for the more expensive one because I recognise the label. It's very Ah, bizarre the way it works, isn't it? Also, I have to to say, full disclosure here, I have the most brilliant friend in advertising, Peter Souter, who used to run uh, one of the big ad agencies. And he was involved with possibly my all-time favourite campaign because it was just so clever. And that was The Economist. Those bright red billboards with white, a single white strap line on them. Um, One of their best was free enterprise with every issue. Um, but they were just so, so clever in, in, in many ways. Well, there that's, was also that's one part of it, isn't it? I yeah. mean, 
The ad man that I used to talk to a lot, he used to say that one of the keys of a good advertisement is to be disruptive, so that it slightly throws you. It's not just, I mean, obviously there are tricks that we talk about using a few words, being personal, intimate, you know. Do you remember the famous Lord Kitchener poster? Your country needs you, involving you, having a, a catchy jingle, creating these memorable characters, playing with words. But at the same time, there must be something that hooks you and keeps you there. Give me one more, and then I want to ask about the TV series Mad Men. Well, one of the ones that, just to touch on language again, because obviously that's what we're all about, if a slogan passes into general use, that's surely the ultimate goal of the advertiser. Um, so one wood preservative manufacturer, and you'll probably remember, has seen it does exactly what it says on the tin, enter as a kind of, you know, a, a sort of general idiom in English. Do you remember the brand? Now, I would have thought that the phrase was picked up by the manufacturer rather than the other way around. But you're telling me the no. manufacturer came up with a slogan and now we all use it? Yeah, I'm pretty Goodness. sure. And that was Ron Seal. Ron um, Seal. Also, Vavavoom. Vavavoom. We've got plenty of Vavavoom. I love the phrase. But no, what? the brand? Nope. Renault. Renault. Um, as I say, I think I think language is so key because you've only got, as you've said, a very short amount of time. Or if it's a print ad, obviously you've just got a few seconds for, for people to uh, to read it. There was also five o'clock shadow. That's another one. Five o'clock shadow is a really really old ad for gem blades in America, and it says goodbye five o'clock shadow. It's actually around that time. It is quite extraordinary. You would find. Ads positively recommending the health benefits of cigarettes and that kind of thing. You know, if you have a cough, smoke a, I can't remember what it was, um, not a cough in a car load was something for old gold cigarettes, I think. I'd walk a mile for a camel. You're never alone with a strand. Happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. Remember that one? I do remember. I, mean, I can hear the music as well. Winston um, tastes good like a cigarette should. And people used to lend their names to cigarette companies. The, the yeah. actor Gerald Dumaurier, they were Dumaurier cigarettes. The actor Laurence Olivier, they were Olivier cigarettes. And these are things that actually kill people. I know, it's extraordinary. Oh, here we go. For your throat's sake, smoke Craven A's for Craven oh, A cigarettes. My father smoked Craven A. Um, and oh, loved really? them. Okay, Red boxes with a black cat. Oh, he loved them. They killed him, but <laughs> he loved them. Now, these ads that you're talking about of the smoking variety featured very much in a, an extraordinary TV series called Mad Men, which yeah. was set in the 1950s, 1960s. Everybody smoked in it, and I found it completely gripping. But I wondered about some of the phrases in there that maybe you can unwrap for me, even if you didn't see the series. Why were they called Mad Men, do you know? I think, um, I haven't seen this yet, so I'm looking forward to it, but I think that actually it was to do with the fact that they were on Madison Avenue. So they were uh, the men on Madison Avenue. I think that was the idea. And of course, then it absolutely suited the, by the sounds of it, suited the, the plot line. But it does sound brilliant. I know I've missed a trip by not watching and it. Madison Avenue in New York, New York, is like Fleet Street was in London, Street Street, yeah. the street of newspapers, Madison Avenue, the street of advertising people. This is reminding me how very parochial we are being with all these ads. Purple people around the world, send us the slogans that you think have been the most effective and maybe tell us why, particularly ones involving words and language, you think they've worked effectively. It isn't always words that does it. I think of the lovely Hovis ads. It's entirely the music and the picture of the boy climbing the hill that made those oh, yeah. ads work. That's a nostalgia there, absolutely. Back, back to Mad Men, lots of talk of copy mm. and copywriters. Where does that come mm. from? 
Yes, advertising copy. I mean, it's literally is just just sort of uh, for text. But I mean, you're you're right to mention the kind of tribal jargon of of advertising. We haven't actually also mentioned advert itself, which comes from the Latin ad, meaning towards, and vetere to turn, because an advert makes you turn your attention uh, towards it. Or as one Canadian humorist put it, advertising may be the science of arresting human intelligence long enough to get money from it. But back to the tribal language. I mean, the kind of Account men and women are called suits or sometimes bag carriers. Their awards are pencils. An award? If you get if you win a prize? If you get an award, you've got a pencil. Oh. Um, you have subliminal advertising. Obviously, that's the kind that consumer doesn't even know they're absorbing. So that's product placement. But it's also, I think, as good as, you know, the smell of fresh bread when you when you enter a supermarket, which takes you straight to the bread aisle or the little, oh. little baskets at the front, which you've got freshly baked hot cross buns on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a bastard, which is an awkward print ad size, or it could alternatively be a client, possibly. Oh, you mean, yes, you open the newspaper and the advertisement is a funny shape. It goes across two pages. And that, yes. Is that what a, a bastard is? So absolutely it's quite right. difficult to design. That's why it's called a bastard. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely right. Where does the word slogan, where does that come from? Yeah, slogan is a really interesting one. It's very, very old. So it actually, you don't know how it began. No. No, it actually was a slughorn, believe it or not, and it was a a war cry. If you look back to, say, the Battle of Flodden, where the English army defeated the invading Scots army, so that was King James IV, they had a slughorn. It's it's a Gaelic word meaning the cry of the host. So it was a, a war cry used by Scottish Highlanders and borderers in their battles against the English. So it was very much part of the kind of skirmish. And the slogan cry eventually left its roots, but it kept that sort of sense of the distinctive note, phrase or cry of a certain body of people. And then, of course, of the distinctive note of uh, of a brand. So it's come such a long way. Mm. But it's still, I can see why it's called a slogan. It's brilliant. Mm. Give me any more from, from the lingo of the ad men. You have um, Greek, which is fake copy used just to show, you know, the, the space that the real copy will occupy. Uh, so as in it's all Greek, Greek to me. I mean, it's just, yeah. Yes, that goes back to Shakespeare, that one. You have a tissue. Uh, now, a tissue meeting is an early one with a potential client at which you kind of float ideas, but they might be instantly disposable. You might just say, yeah, yeah, great idea, but that's not going to work. Then you have the brief, obviously, which is the document from the client explaining what's required. I mean, you and I have had briefs in our time. They're usually anything but brief. Um, have you made any ads yourself for TV ads? Very weirdly, I remember telling this story on 8 out of 10 cats. I was asked when I lived in Germany to provide a word for a German ad, a chocolate ad. And I thought, well, obviously I'm going to be saying something British, which is, you know, going to be sophisticated and add a bit of exoticism. And do you know what I had to say? Tell me. Mmm. <laughs> it wasn't even, they didn't need an English speaker to do that. It was just, mmm. That was it. But I think the way you're doing it in English... Does sound quite English. Do you? I don't know what the German equivalent of mmm would be. Um, Anyway, it's probably time that we got to our lovely emails from the purple people. Well, look, before we do, purple people, if you know about advertising in your part of the world, do please feel free to share your favourite advertising slogans with us and we can then uh, chat about those. Who's been in touch with us this week? 
Yes, we've had an email from Marius in Germany. Now, Marius has a surname, which is going to make me sound very drunk when I try to pronounce it, but I'm going to give it a go. Mishashinsky. Sorry, Marius, I probably completely mangled that. But anyway, they have asked about apparent connection in different languages between the number eight and the word night, because obviously eight and night share the same letters apart from the first. And what Marius has noticed, and many others have before, is that it's the same in different languages. So acht in German is nacht. Then you have oui for eight in French, and then nuit. You have ocho and noche. You have otto and notte. And so it goes on. That's amazing. And, it's know, quite it's amazing. amazing. So eight in English is gives you the word night. Acht is eight in German. At an N, it becomes nacht, which means night. Huit, H-U-I-T in French. Take off the H, replace it with N, becomes nuit. Is not, this is completely extraordinary. Otto, what language is that? Otto, notte. Those are, that's uh, Italian. Oh, extraordinary. Now, what's the reason for this? Yes, there. well, do you know what? It is entirely, well, I say entirely coincidence. It's a coincidence in that they weren't intended to have a link. But they go back to very ancient and very similar roots in what's called Proto-Indo-European, which is a kind of reconstructed language that was the sort of progenitor, if you like, of many, many of the modern languages we have today. But because they were very similar roots, they actually then progressed in sound in kind of parallel lines because sound patterns tend to sort of follow the same, they evolve in the same way throughout the languages. So these sounds remained very, very close together all the way through, which is why there is this sound similarity. But as far as we can tell, it is a complete coincidence. That's extraordinary. I know, it is, isn't it? It's really interesting. It kind of makes you go, ooh. Thank you, Marius, for sharing that. Now, you found that surname a bit challenging. I find this surname full of nostalgia, because I knew the great uncle of the person who's written to us. Susan Bramble has written to us from County Wicklow in Ireland. Hello, Giles and Susie. My great uncle played the part of Steptoe Senior in the old TV show, Steptoe and Son. And when I was young, we watched it, vaguely mystified at the dialect they used, as we hadn't heard it before in Dublin. One word they use, which we still use, is clobber for clothes. Mm. Any idea where clobber came from? For our international listeners, Steptoe and Son was a brilliant television series written by a double act called Galton and Simpson. They famously in the 1950s wrote for Tony Hancock. He didn't want them to write anymore, so they went on to write for Harry H. Corbett and Wilfred Bramble this amazing series about a rag and bone man and his son called Steptoe and Son. Clobber. Where does clobber come from? Well, I have to disappoint because the answer is we just don't know. It goes back to the late 19th century. We know it's not related to the clobber that, again, very British, um, means to hit someone hard. Um, if you clobber someone over the head or you might defeat them completely by clobbering another football team. That dates from the Second World War and seems to have been RAF slang for striking a place hard in a bombing raid. But again, we don't know where either of those come from. I mean, I would guess that there's something about the sort of sound symbolism for hitting someone if you clobber them because you can make that sound quite funky. But I'm not sure about clobber for clothes. Maybe a Romany origin? Who knows? But I'm sorry to let Susan down, but, you know, the, the, the search will go on. If you think you have a better answer, please get in touch. It's purple at somethingelse.com. Now, Susie, I want three 
wonderful words for you this week. Somebody stopped me in the street. Now, we're allowed to be stopped in the street. They still kept their distance and said they love your words and they quite liked the Scrabble words I mentioned the other day. Did I, did I have another one for them? And I did. I offered the word cash, C-A-Z, which is short for casual. I don't know if it's allowed in your dictionary, but in the Scrabble world, we allow C-A-Z. can be a very useful Scrabble word. You've got words with a deeper heritage. What are you going to offer us? Yes, well, I just thought this one is quite appropriate for springtime. And I might have mentioned it at the beginning of lockdown, which I, when I felt that this is what we were all doing for ourselves, and that is nidificating. <gasps> to nidificate is to make a nest, something that the birds are doing very much at the moment, but something that I felt we were all retreating into, as I say, um, last year. But it's a lovely word, nidificate. And the nid, N-I-D, is as in yes. the French word for nest, isn't it? Exactly, yep. All to the Latin nidus, that followed the same route, nidificate. Like um, this one, I just think it's very useful, very pithy, and describes so many situations. You might say that our current exit out of lockdown, you know, it, it is contingent entirely on all of us obeying the rules. And it is philly pendulous. Philly pendulous means hanging by a thread. Oh, I like it. Philly pendulous. You might say, again, you know, the outcome of a football match in extra time is philly pendulous. And finally, a word that I absolutely love the sound of, and it means to melt away or gradually dissolve. So your fears might hopefully eventually do this, and that is deliquesce. Mm. Deliquesce, which I think is beautiful. Have you got a poem for us? I've got a poem for us. And if you're listening to this for the first time, it'll be around the 14th of April. If you're listening to us in the future, well, we were recording this around the 14th of April. And the 14th of April is the feast of St. Bertius, T-I-B-U-R-T-I-U-S, who is the patron saint of cuckoos. The 14th of ah. April is known as Cuckoo Day. And you were mentioning spring being in the air and that word including nid. What's that again? Say it, nid, nid. Nidificate. 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 So inspired yeah. by that, here's a poem by W.H. Davies, who was an extraordinary writer and lived for many years uh, as, a, as a homeless person. Um, and here he is celebrating the, the unique call that gives the cuckoo its name. The woods and banks of England now, late coppered with dead leaves and old, have made the early violets grow and bulge with knots of primrose gold. Here, how the blackbird flutes away, whose music scorns to sleep at night. Here, how the cuckoo shouts all day for echoes to the world's delight. Hello, you imp of wonder, you. Where are you now, cuckoo? Cuckoo. Oh, that's beautiful. That is lovely. Well, I think that is our lot. We are really grateful for all the reviews that you leave us and also the emails, of course. Um, and we read every single one. So thank you for those. If you would like to get in touch, you can email purple at somethingelse.com. And Something Right with Purple is, of course, a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ellen McLeod, Jay Beale, and the person that, well, those who very kindly attended our live show recently finally got to see in all his glory. Golly! Cuckoo! <laughs>